Good afternoon, Germantown. How are you today? I am Stephanie Heck here with my co-host, Lois Volta. We are the Everyday Feminist, coming to you live on gtownradio.com or Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP. Did I say that right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Lois. I'm so happy today that the rain stopped because it was pouring oh, yesterday. Oh, the sun was so nice today. It was so nice today. Did you get to spend any time outside? No. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. But I saw it from the window. <laughs> it was just nice that it wasn't raining. I mean, I guess it was nice to not get drenched in the moving from the house to the car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yesterday was super dreary. I was dragging yesterday. Yeah. Super dragging. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to pick up a little bit from where we left off last week. Because we were talking, what did we talk about last week? What did we go in talking about? We were talking about um, being, um, why people aren't getting married. (laughs) (laughs) And we went all over the place. We went from like, I think, I think I called the show single, dating, married, divorced, none of the above, right? It's sort of like, it did seem like we kind of spanned the whole gamut of relational possibilities. But we kind of, we ended the show on this, there's something that you said you said that you didn't believe in unconditional love. Yeah, I wish I could remember what the context was. I should have done a little bit more oh, homework. Whatever. Yeah, maybe the, I'm sure our listeners can go back and listen to the last episode and they can link it up. But you said that and I just found that wildly. I know that you've said that before, that you don't believe in unconditional love. And I do. I'm wondering if we're just saying the same thing in different ways. Yeah, probably. And I figured we could kind of hash it out a little bit. Yeah, Well, so maybe I can start by giving you my rationale. Yes. (laughs) Okay. And I I guess maybe what it is, is I don't believe in an expectation of unconditional love. I know I did uh, all of these things that hurt you. And I know that I didn't do the dishes. And I know that I left you hanging. And I know that X, Y, and Z happened. But shouldn't you love me anyway? Because unconditional love, unconditional love, unconditional love. I hear this a lot and it always feels like, at least in the, in these kinds of cases, it can feel like everything that you do, all the ways that you treat another person can be excused because they should love you unconditionally anyway, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I guess I feel like one that minimizes effort Like you don't have to listen, you don't have to change, you don't have to do anything because unconditional love should just be there no matter how you treat somebody. And also too, would you want to be loved by somebody who just loves you unconditionally? Like they don't have any standards or they don't have any, like Mm -hmm. you don't know, like wouldn't we want love to involve care and effort and investment, right? That, you know, you give me the act of love. I give you the act of love back. We're in this together. We're both working at it. We're co-creating it instead of it's just a thing that because I was born, I should be given by everybody. Hmm. This is where I was coming from when I was thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it could be used as a, even like a tactic for somebody to be manipulated into staying into an abusive relationship as well. If you go, if you take it to the extreme, mm-hmm. sure. But it certainly can be a way to not have to look at yourself. So right. if you have a partner who's saying X, Y, and Z have happened and those things have been hard for me or they've hurt me or I need these things to change and someone responds with feeling attacked or 
evaluated or like they're not measuring up and then they feel like, don't you love me? Right. It can get into this kind of space where it feels pretty distorted. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, but what about unconditional love? And then that, it, that just feels like a cop out. So I asked my daughter, I was like, Jane, do you believe in unconditional love? And she was so quick to be like, yes, of course I do. I mean, think about like mothers and daughters. And first of all, my heart just went a little like pitter patter. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I loved my mom unconditionally at 16. Well, and and then, but then she said, and then what about my sisters? She's like, I'm always going to love my sisters, which also made me feel just proud. I know. But then when I told you that when we came into the studio, you're like, well, until somebody totally messes it up. Because like that bond between family members, it does get severed in a lot of families. Right. It's like I've had family members that I would have said that about when I was younger. And then life happens. And then other relationships come in. And then problems develop and right life gets really complicated and really messy and the older you are the messier it gets and the more of a struggle it is to maintain that stance and it doesn't mean that you can't you know there's certainly many relationships that are healthy enough to have that kind of feeling of like there wouldn't be anything that you could do that would make me not love you Mm -hmm. and maybe so maybe so but sometimes I think actually probably there are things that someone could do that would, you know, I mean, maybe it depends on how you define love. Well, that right? was that was going to be my next question for you. Like, in an ideal sense, uh, or when people romanticize the idea of unconditional love, what would you? What do you think that is? Unconditional love mm-hmm. that no matter what you do, no matter how you treat me, no matter how you behave, I will just love you, right? I will still be considering you. I will. Right. To me, it starts to feel a little bit like um, masochism or something like this idea of what would unconditional love be? It would be kind of this all giving, all nurturing, all warm. It would be the angel of the house. Mm. Like the angel Mm -hmm. of the house has unconditional love. Right. Go back to our first ever episode and listen to the angel of the house. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That it would that there's something about that, this expectation of, you know, like, you know, no matter how it goes, there's always going to be a pot of warm stew, like hanging over the fire. And, you know, you can go out and harm all the people you want. But still, when you come home, <laughs> like that, like yeah. that, and that, I guess I just feel like I don't believe in that. And I don't like I kind of I personally don't want that. Like, I don't I don't want um, to feel like it's okay to treat anybody however you want to treat them and they'll still just love you. See, I just have a different definition or a different way that I've thought about it. And in some ways I think, and, and I, cause I talked to a few friends today. I was on the phone chit chatting with a few friends asking their interpretation as well. And one thing I heard, cause I grew up in the church and a few of my friends that I talked to had also grow, grown up in the church Unconditional love is a very like biblical or religious type of thing. This idea of this like no matter what type of love, right? This kind of like big biblical idealistic love, agape love. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I I think of unconditional love as selfless love, and it's something that and and we've we've talked about this before, but. 
if you take it and you replace it with respect, right? Like you either are a respectful person or you are not a respectful person and you give respect to people or you treat things with respect because you are respectful. Same with love. Like you can be loving, you can be caring, you can have love because we have it and we can give it. I mean, there's one person particularly in my life that I feel like she has taught me that love is an action. Love is an action. I do not like the way that she talks to me. I do not like the way that she treats me. I don't like the way that she talks to my, my kids. I don't like the way that she's talked to my family. I don't really actually like many of the things and choices that she's chosen, but she's in my life. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I don't like her, though. I just don't like what she's doing. I How don't... do you differentiate those things? Because she's a person. She's a person. And if if I'm going to get all Quaker on it, like I'm a person and she's a person and I'm not going to like everything that everybody does, but she's still a person. Mm-hmm. But if love is an action and if I can think about, okay, well, I actually want to be kind to somebody, even if I don't particularly like what they're saying or like what they're doing, because I want to be a loving person or not even want to be a loving person. I believe I'm a loving person. So I'm going to be loving in response. And in that way, I feel like I can even give this person that has been a really difficult person in my life, my unconditional love. And it doesn't excuse her behaviors. It doesn't say, oh, you can treat me all the ways that you want and I'm going to love you anyway. It's like, okay, yeah, you go live your life over there and I can still respond to you in love, but like, I'm not, like, you're not going to be in my inner circle here. You're not going to be close to me, but I can still be loving towards you when I see you, if I have to see you. Right. So in other words, like if we go to the examples I was thinking of, it doesn't matter how I've hurt you, you should love me anyway. I guess with this in mind, the answer would be yes, sign the divorce papers, move out. (laughs) I'll still have love in my heart for you, but I will not give you the action verb. I'm not going to have you in my house. I'm not going to have you like actually the kind of love that would mean that, you know, I would be just kind of like giving you like all the warmth and love at home, no matter how you behave. It's not that. Mm. It might be that, okay, so I will love you from a distance. I will, I will respect the human in you. And respect is a whole other thing. But like, I will respect you as a person and I will acknowledge your humanity, even if I don't like a lot of the things that you do, as long as you're not doing them to me. We're good. Yeah, well, I, I think that that takes like a certain amount of self-awareness and uh, self-respect mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Because let's be real. I mean, it's a lot of times people stay in relationships that somebody is really taking advantage of the amount of love that they have to give. And they're staying in those relationships because, I don't know, maybe they're not treating themselves with the same type of love and respect that they feel like they should be given. Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes it's a self-respect issue. And then when people get it and feel it and are able to do the internal work and then they see the problems and then they feel like, wait, hold on, there is more to life than me just being at someone's service. Even if it's beautiful, selfless love that they have to offer, they still are deserving of respectful, loving kindness mm -hmm. in, in return. And if they're being confronted, I mean, I say this, I mean, we talk about this all the time, Stephanie, but it's like if the people in our own homes aren't treating us with respect and love, like, what does that say about the lives that we lead? Right. It's, I mean, yeah, let's get the papers out. So in some ways, again, you know, like you suspected, we're sort of saying the same thing, right? It doesn't mean, I don't think that um, not having unconditional love means hate or dislike or anything like that. But I do sort of feel like there's something to me, I guess, about the, the idea of the entitlement. Mm -hmm. That I'm a that I should not have to invest in a relationship and get to have a relationship anyway, right? That there's something, and that that is sort of like the context in which I've sort of heard some of these stories, mm -hmm. and it drives me nuts. So, like the expectation of being in a partnership, particularly a legal document yep. of marriage, being in a relationship like that and feeling like it's owed to you. Right, or that because you were told this, there should be unconditional love between people, then no matter what you do, that 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 can't be broken. Mm -hmm. And I do think that some of those things can be broken when people harm each other, mm -hmm. depending on what it is and the matter of degree. Or if it's, you know, it can certainly even be a death by paper cuts thing. If somebody is continuously getting hurt by the same small things and telling their partner this hurts and the partner squirms around it or doesn't want to acknowledge it or can't apologize or can't see it any other way, then they shouldn't be surprised when the relationship ends because those things erode relationships, mm -hmm. right? And so in some ways, if you think like, "What? wait, but wait, I had this idea that you would love me no matter what. I mean, then you kind of can also end up surprised, I mean, I was in a relationship where I felt like I really, my, my feet were to the fire, like, and, and at a time where the growth that was happening for me was like, I really wanted, I wanted to go through the fire in a way to know that I was a loving person, that I responded in love, that I, I wasn't reactionary. I wanted to hold it together, right? That I wanted to do the quote unquote, like right thing in a situation and part of that love for me was being like, okay, these are all the things that he is saying to me. And I'm looking at him. And I didn't like anything that any of the picture he was painting of me, not one bit. I didn't feel like any of it was true. I felt like it was very manipulative. I, I wasn't you. It wasn't me. And I was like, you're painting this picture and I'm looking at it. And then I'm like showing this picture he painted to like the people who love me. And they're like, that's not true. That's not you, Lois. Like, that's not, that's not, that's not what it is. But I felt like the act of love that I, if it was good or bad, I don't know, but I tried it on, right? Okay, well, if this is me, then that would mean this, and that would mean this, and that would mean this, and that would mean this. And it, it destroyed me. Like, me loving him was, and looking at his perspective destroyed me. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized the cost of that love was not something I was safe, was safe. Well, right, because it's like you'd have to sacrifice the unconditional love of yourself 
or that's, something. Yeah, and right? that's what I'm saying. It's like, and then when I was able to get more of like, like, okay, hold on. Well, what picture do I present? How am I in this world? What do my friends see? What does my family see? And I was able to use them more as the mirror instead of this like kind of messed up version Mm-hmm. of what what was being reflected to me some warped version of what was reflected to me like and honestly I don't I I was saying to you earlier Stephanie like I don't think that I will ever really be able to make right that reflection with that person and I don't need to yeah no no you don't mm-hmm. you don't need to mm-hmm. it's like that's in the realm too just as a slight aside here you know, I hear people talk a whole lot about, you know, like, well, it takes two to tango. Relationships are co-constructed. Both people bring something to the table. I mean, I know I'm only one side of the story. And there are times that I would like to just correct that to say relationships are only co-constructed when people operate on the same level of mental health. Yeah. Because if one partner is sicker than the other, the sickness drives it. Right. And that then it's not co-constructed then one person's almost the caretaker the care you know it's like or mm-hmm. if you have someone who's abusive mm-hmm. then it's not co-constructed because it's not like the the person who's being victimized did something really it, it's more like no this person has like whatever inside of them that's causing them to be abusive and that's a thing they have to work out and that exists probably predates the relationship exists within the relationship will exist beyond the relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not co-constructed under those circumstances, but it also doesn't change how I respond to it now in my heart. Sure. And I still can say full heartedly that I still have unconditional love for this person. Just don't come near me ever again. (laughs) It's like where you get very (laughs) spiritual. (laughs) And I, and I, and I guess I don't know. I think sometimes, no, I think that there, at least for me, there are things that someone can do that can kind of crush it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean I won't respect you. Doesn't mean I'll mistreat you. Doesn't mean I'll talk bad about you, but it does mean that those feelings are not going to be there. Yeah. But I mean, I think we are saying the same thing. I think we are because I I feel that how you just described that. That's how I feel like I don't have like I'm not saying I have like lovey dovey feelings. Right. I'm not saying like I just I guess what it comes down to is I don't want people who come into my life who stir it up and make a mess and blow things up to ever take away the love that I have to give anybody else. Yeah. Even myself. Well, so I get that. I mean, absolutely, because then there's too much. That's a whole other level of cost, mm-hmm. right? That it's sort of like that they would that they would shorten your love supply or right. something. So, but so that's and that, I guess that's what I'm saying is like I can still, in that way, extend if I if I'm thinking about this person, instead of feeling like that person was a monster, I could say, you know what? I hope he's not dead in a ditch somewhere. I hope that he's healthy. I hope that he's getting his things together. I hope that he is working on himself and doing all the proper things that he needs to do to take care of himself, to take care of and fit his family or whatever that looks like. So he doesn't do this to anybody else. Right. But just stay away from me. Right. But like that to me is my outpouring 
of unconditional love. Right. And so it's in that regard, it's sort of, it's almost like what I'm saying is proximal and what you're saying is distal, but they're the same thing, right? Like from a close up, like when we're thinking of like what's happening in the action, in the actions inside of your home in terms of what you will and won't tolerate, Mm-hmm. we're on the same page. And if you're talking about sort of like from a distance, depending on, I guess, how you define love, I can want, I can want deep wellness for you, right? I can want no harm to come to you, mm-hmm. but you're not going to be in my house, right? That there's that, that the love changes or it becomes a different kind of, that's right. Right. It becomes more like a, you know, a spiritual wishing you well kind of love and not as much of an action verb daily life. I feel like it's selfless in a way. It's selfish and selfless all at the same time. In one way, it makes me feel better when I'm not hating somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so like in that way, it serves me. But in the other way, it's like it really has nothing to do with me because I'm not going to see this person ever. You know, like it really just means I, I... Oh, it, I just really actually, it doesn't matter to me. It's just love. Yeah, yeah. And I guess maybe this might be a place where you and I differ. I don't know. But I actually, like, I don't mind selfishness. Like, I don't mind selfishness. I don't mind envy. I don't mind destructive thoughts. I don't mind death wishes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I really, I'm okay with having a dark side where I might sometimes wish something bad on somebody. Mm-hmm. Like, and that just feels like where I am in the moment. It doesn't mean I'm going to act on it. It's mm-hmm. just a thought or a feeling or like a momentary fleeting fantasy. And I, and I get that like in our culture today, we're not supposed to have those kinds of dark feelings. Like we're supposed to be kind of, you know, generally on the side of like more positivity. But this is where I would say that I think, at least for me, I can have a positive relationship with my own negativity. And so it doesn't mean that I won't also... Like in reality, I would do, I wouldn't harm anybody, but I might be gratified by like a fantasy of someone tripping and falling. I mean, really, because some people really hurt you and you're not going to, you're not going to hurt them back in reality, but it's okay. Like to me, I'm just like, you know, you can, we can have freedom within our minds to go where we need to go and not act on it. Right. I'm not, because otherwise it's like, if you're in denial about your own dark capacities, you're much more likely to act them out, actually, than if you can be like, you know what, that was enraging. And I'm so mad at you right now that I'm like wishing bad things on you. And I don't like this feeling, but I can acknowledge that I have it. And that to me, it's sort of like similar to envy. Like envy becomes destructive when it's not acknowledged. If I can say to you like, wow, I'm really jealous of that, or I wish I had what she had or something, and I can talk about it and formulate it and put it into words and acknowledge that it's there, the chance of any harm coming to anyone really gets diminished. It's, what, it's one of the reasons why in psychotherapy there's a right to privacy, so that someone can come in and say anything that needs to be said no matter what it is, mm-hmm. because the saying of it is usually protective for other people. Like a parent who can come in and talk about how much they hate their baby because the baby won't let them sleep. Maybe it's got colic. Like if they can come in and say it, the chance of them ever harming that baby goes way down Hmm. because there it is. We can talk about it. We can put it into words. We can see why you might feel that way Mm -hmm. and how, and once you let it out, you can find the love again, right? You don't have to be so caught up in it. You can kind of move within it and around it and it's just a part of it. 
I fant. <laughs> you want to know what my fantasy is? <laughs> I'm fantasizing that Stephanie will stop talking this way. <laughs> I have like, I have fantasies of people coming to their knees. <laughs> oh, I want to hear this. <laughs> or just like for like to like um, for people to take responsibility. Yes. To for people to like admit their wrongdoing. Yeah. For people to ask for forgiveness. And however difficult that might be, you might have to go through that. It does I feel like it's not like a ill wish. It's like I really, really wanna see this difficult process that you're gonna have to go through. But I'm gonna try to make it as easy for you as possible. Yeah, and I'm with you. I feel like that's a very, that's a sort of, for me, that's where I go, is like there's a wish for reality sometimes, for people to have to face themselves Mm -hmm. in reality. Or if you have set um, things on a really dark course, that then, and you're not trying to correct it, then they reach their logical conclusion. Mm -hmm. You mistreat somebody and you wind up alone. Well, (laughs) they tried to tell you. And maybe at that point, you can come to see that you could do things differently. And at that point, maybe there's the come to your knees moment or that mm-hmm. there would be something of people actually looking at how they've treated other people and owning it and expressing some kind of remorse or wanting to change and then having the people there to accept them. Yeah, I think that. it's important to make it easy for people when they do that. Absolutely. I mean, that is just, to me, that is like a magical thing that mm-hmm. humanity can do. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people will weaponize vulnerability. Oh, you've said something. Oh, you're sorry. And now I'm going to take that and whip it back on you. Like, how sorry are you? Or whatever. Oh, my gosh. I hate that. Me too. I mean, frankly, you know, not to bring, if we kind of step away, maybe this is relevant to women's issues. But if you even think about it in terms of race, I really feel like if black people had done that to white people, like, that would have been, they would have had every right. Like, I feel like when in, in a race world and in the world that's racist that we live in, if someone can start to see their own racism and acknowledge it and apologize and own it, people that they're apologizing to, I have always felt 100% of the time that they accept that and they're glad for it and they welcome it and they're Right, embracing of it. I don't. I have never had the experience. Like when I've been the person who's had to apologize for something that I did, maybe without my own awareness, but then suddenly I see it. No one has ever rejected me and mm-hmm. like said, made it like I was a bad person. It's more like, okay, now you're waking up to the thing. Right. And since you're waking up to it, we're here. We're here for mm-hmm. that. Don't hurt us anymore, but we're here for that. And that's where trust starts coming into the picture because somebody might be able to wake up from something, but they also have a long history or a long life of certain behavior. So you can wake up, but you might fall back on patterns that could be very destructive. And it takes a long time for people to trust somebody again. Yeah. For instance, I was talking to someone today and they were saying to me, well, this person in their life is having one of those aha moments now. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I would like to see that too. I want to see the aha moment. I want to see this person waking up too. Because if it's good as you're describing it, awesome. Yeah. That that would be, that's the best case scenario. 
that that this person wakes up. But hold on for a second. Because if they don't take responsibility for all the things that they have done before that aha moment, how can you really trust that the aha moment is real? Of course. Right, it would have to be part of the aha, would be the awareness of all that had happened that they had done that was harmful. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, I mean, that can be a really intense moment. Like when someone really faces themselves. I mean, we have so much of this in our society right now that it makes me crazy. So few people really willing to look at their own dark sides with any honesty or to really look at the ways that they've hurt someone else honestly because they're trying to preserve a particular view of themselves to themselves. Well, I would never think that I'm a good person. Really? I would. I would think that. It's okay to think that. It's, you know, it's not about being a good person or not a good person. It's just about being a person. But if we're trying to preserve some view of ourselves as being only one way, I'm only good, then it's harder to acknowledge when you've hurt somebody. That it like rattles your identity, right? Then you've got to kind of like redefine who you are. And that can be a real crisis. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like in a marriage or any kind of a relationship where someone is discovered as having had an affair or a betrayal comes out. In the moment that the person is confronted, it's like they go into a crisis. The person who did it goes in, often goes into a crisis because two sides of themselves that have been split apart now have to look at each other, right? There was the me that was in the relationship that was hiding the other thing. And then there's the other hidden thing that, that didn't come out in this context. And now all of a sudden there's this collision of realities, like the two parts of me, the part of me that's capable of deception and the part of me that's a loving partner mm-hmm. now have to meet. Mm-hmm. And that's a crisis that can be really a huge identity crisis because now there's the question of, wow, what kind of person am I really? Well, that gets, that leads us to the question of, um, intention. Oh yeah. Well, that's a big one. You know, I don't think that people on this planet for the most part, unless you're really struggling with a mental illness or you've got something, some carrying a whole lot of trauma or something, I believe most people aren't walking around this world intentionally trying to hurt other people. I think sometimes people make selfish decisions in their own interests. I think that people can hurt people unintentionally. I think sometimes people don't care if somebody else gets hurt Mm -hmm. and they're just doing what's best for them or taking opportunities uh, or or power. Some people just crave power and they don't really care if it necessarily hurts somebody else. Mm -hmm. But I don't think people are walking around just ready to punch someone in the face. Yeah. I mean, that gets into something else I was thinking about, you know, in, in, in planning for this show, like in my own mind, that in addition to like unconditional love, there's this other concept that was coined by this one of the earlier psychologists, Carl Rogers, who was part of this humanitarian movement of psychotherapy. His whole way of working with patients was based on a premise of unconditional positive regard, of always assuming the best intention in the person in front of him. Mm-hmm. 
So he operated, you know, and, you know, his, there's stories of stories that have come from patients that he treated who were like, you know, working with him was like working with like your loving grandfather. Like he just Mm -hmm. always came at it from a position of you didn't mean harm and I, or like, I'm going to always assume the best in you. And he felt that that was like a very, created a very healing space. I believe that. And I think, you know, for me, similarly, like I am somebody who like, I don't believe in the bad egg. I don't believe that there are some kids that are just born bad and they just are bad. I believe that horrible things happen to people that can damage them in such a way that they might become more sociopathic. They might lose the capacity for empathy. They might have no one to attach to, so they attach to their own power in the world, and Mm -hmm. that's their identity now. Mm -hmm. But they weren't born like that. Mm -hmm. There's nobody who can, I mean, unless somebody can show me a sociopathy gene, I really don't Mm -hmm. think so. Really, when we give each other the benefit of the doubt, there's a give and a take to that. For instance, an extreme version of that is you give someone the benefit of the doubt and you're always assuming that someone you know didn't mean to do that or their intentions were good. You could really get yourself into quite an abusive relationship where you feel like you can't get out of and someone just keeps treating you a certain way. Mm-hmm. And you keep like, oh, well, it's because you know, their dad was like that to them or treated them like that. Or it's because this happened and because this happened and they didn't really mean to do it and they're operating out of whatever, right? So you give them the benefit of the doubt and uh, that's the part where it's like good to have like your own dignity to say, no, don't treat me like that. Right. But then there's this other part where it's like, okay, in conflict with just, let's just say like seemingly healthy, normal functioning people even highly functioning people when somebody makes a choice and it impacts someone if they meant to or not to but it caused harm I would way rather try to give that person the benefit of the doubt and then engage in conversation because it seems healthier all the way around instead of wishing that they tripped and busted their face on the stairs that they were falling down. See, there you go. I just had a vision of somebody hurting. (laughs) I did it, Stephanie. I did it. I mean, look, I'm not trying to introduce darkness if it's not there. It's more just like if it's there, let's not be in denial about it and say that it can be there and we can have it and it can still be okay and we cannot hurt anybody. And in fact, it's protective of people to acknowledge that, that, that we can have angry parts of ourselves. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, anger and abuse get so confused Mm -hmm. and people who've been abused get so confused about having anger, right? Normal, ordinary anger becomes Mm -hmm. contaminated, which is a whole other story. But you're making me think just about the concept of innocent until proven guilty, right? That there's a sense that like, I'm going to begin with trust of you. I'm going to begin in an interaction, assuming the best in you. But if you continuously hurt me, then I'm going to my my perspective is going to start to change. Things will start to shift in how I perceive you or I perceive you in relation to me. And certainly it's like if someone is because I know what you're talking about. And, you know, we can do this a lot. And I think women really do this a lot. Oh, he didn't mean to because, well, it's just because of this happened to him and that happened and that happened and this happened. And all of those things may be true. 
But then the question is, what is he doing to work on that so that it doesn't get acted out with you? So maybe this is somebody who had bad things that happened. And as a result, there's a whole lot of rage in there that hasn't been dealt with Mm -hmm. because we've been focused on being positive and we're not going to grieve anything and we're not going to really look at the hard shit. Pardon Mm -hmm. my French. (laughs) Like, like we're not going to really look at that. And so it's still there. And it's because it's not being dealt with, it's going to continuously get enacted. Right. Right. It's like I've said this before in the show, like Freud had this idea that emotion seeks expression. It's in there and it's going to be looking for ways out until you can maybe go into some kind of a safe space and actually deal with it and know that you have it and deal with it and live with it and have it as a part of you that you know, but it's within your control. Mm-hmm. It's not going to just come bursting out and, you know, result in you hurting someone. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe this happened and that happened and that happened, but there's a point at which someone really does need to take responsibility. Well, I am all about people taking personal responsibility. Right. Right. If you made the mess, clean it up. And sometimes we just can't clean up messes by ourselves. Yeah. It's just we can't and we need help. Get someone to help you clean up the mess. Yeah. But don't expect them to clean the mess up for you. And I think that's what you're saying as far as in the beginning of our conversation. Like I'm making, and we take that to the home, right? Somebody walks in the house, tosses their shoes, tosses their socks, flops on the couch. Dinner magically appears in front of their face. Clothes thrown around. Some people live like that. Right. Without any understanding of the mess that they create at all. And then... If you paralleled that with some people could be super, super tidy, but emotionally they're just like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's not always a reflect. Like I do want to clarify that it's not the way that we live tidy, cluttered, whatever, clean, dirty. It's not always a reflection of the internal state, obviously. Right. But there is tendencies there that sometimes people just really, really, really don't want to own their mess. Right. And maybe that's where I'm thinking about this expectation of unconditional love can come in, which becomes a deflection under, right? If, if, you know, day after day you've come in and you've like thrown your stuff all over the living room and you have, you you know, like I'm thinking of like my teenagers and they're not taking responsibility for their mess and you bring up the mess and they say, but don't you love me? Right. That's, those are separate things, right? Mm -hmm. It's, not about loving you or not loving you. It's about you picking up your backpack and putting it where it goes. Like, like to mm-hmm. conflate the two, it's just, mm-hmm. it's like a distraction tactic mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, it's like, right. but look over there. And it's like, well, now you're kind of changing the story. Mm-hmm. So now I'm defending myself. It's like, no, but I do love you. And now we're arguing about do I love you or don't I love you instead of could you put the backpack away? Mm -hmm. Right. It's like those are separate things. And I do think that they can get kind of conflated. Mm -hmm. That's where that's where it gets problematic. Feels real to feel taken advantage of. It's really real. And particularly thinking about women's emotional labor, not only their physical labor and the hermeneutic labor. Right. The the women's intuition labor. All of it. Mm -hmm. When somebody really doesn't acknowledge it and value it it really is easy to feel taken advantage of. And that is not an environment where that is sustainable. I mean, some women are long people 
are very, very long suffering. But then what's the payoff? Right. That right. they that they lived an unconditionally loving life and they were miserable. Oh man, there's a concept <laughs> in the old school psychodiagnostic world, there was a concept of the moral masochist. The long suffering, woe is me, I just give to everyone and no one gives back to me, right? But continuing to do the the thing, right? It's like and in a way that can kind of almost feel holier than thou because I'm just always putting myself last, mm -hmm. which really doesn't do anything for anybody. <laughs> you know, like it might be that it's, it's okay to also value yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. But some people do get kind of wedded to that position. It becomes very familiar and then sort of like locked in. Well, then it like turns into like part of their personality. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You were saying something earlier about intention, right? And, and, I sort of wanted to get back to that mm -hmm. because when, when you were talking about like, if you make the mess, clean it up. If you make the mess, take responsibility. Absolutely. Right. But things do get messy in the sense that sometimes people get hurt. And again, and when we go back to the idea of like unconditional positive regard, the intention may not have been anything harmful. Right. We see this a lot today. People are like have a whole lot of sensitivity. People have, you know, paranoia, a lot of which makes a lot of sense to have to really feel like, um, you know, someone could be people could be looking at you in a negative light. But sometimes that gets generalized and people really aren't. But it feels like they are. Mm -hmm. And then we have a bit of a mess of a confusion of you looked at me funny. You meant to do that. Now I'm really hurt and you owe me an apology. And the mm -hmm. other person's like, I did, I didn't mean to. Well, I didn't want you to feel that way, but I hope you know, I didn't mean it. Oh no, no, you meant it. Right. And it can really get into this kind of tricky, messy where the, the person was impacted and is not willing to acknowledge that the other person did not intend that. Cause the impact is, is means more, than what the person's intention are. Is that what you're saying? Right, right. And especially, I mean, I don't know, I guess I like to, there, you know, I know that the world is a big complicated place and there are all kinds of people. But a lot of times I think if someone, when everyone's at least functioning in a generally healthy way, in a healthy society, if someone says, hey, you hurt me, the other person can say, how did that happen? I didn't mean to. And then there can be a dialogue that if there's something for the person who did the hurting to learn that they didn't know they were doing, then they'd be willing to learn it. And, and maybe conversely, simultaneously, the person who was impacted can say, I know you didn't mean it that way, but you really do need to know how I felt that. Mm -hmm. right? And when there's care and there's conversation and communication, those things can get sorted out. Mm -hmm. Right? Because not every time... I mean, I know for me that every time I feel hurt, it's not because the other person meant to hurt me. It's because I come with my own set of experiences that give me certain areas where I am more vulnerable to that. So some areas, it takes very little for me to, someone else, someone could do a thing to someone else, they wouldn't even feel it. Mm -hmm. To me, it might be, you know, a trigger point. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can I get a little biblical here? Oh boy! <laughs> you know, I mean, I have a, I have an interesting relationship with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but 
there's, don't we all, Lois? <laughs> don't we all? But there's some things that he said that I was like, that was pretty cool. One of the last things that he ever said, he said, fa- I mean, the father thing, that's like the biggest, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's one of the hardest things for me that God is father or something. But yeah. we're going to forgive that. Let's just say he said mother or whatever. This is how it was but, translated anyway. Yes. He says, Father, forgive them. The people who are killing him. Mm-hmm. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And I can translate that to the benefit of the doubt approach where if somebody gives me a look and they maybe not know how it might have triggered me or, you know, like you're saying, or, you know, there was, you know, there's been people in my life that I was like, wow, that really affected us quite that impact. That was a big impact. And that was a big old slice they took out of our side, you know, Mm -hmm. like that was big. Maybe some people do know what they're doing. Some people do, but maybe they don't. Maybe they really don't understand the impact that they're making. Maybe people know that it might hurt. Obviously, in this case, they were killing somebody, right? They were killing Jesus. They knew what they were doing, but he's saying they don't even, they don't even know. They're so blind to it. They're so blind to what they're doing that they can't even see it. Right. But if they had gone to psychoanalysis and dealt with their own dark side, maybe they wouldn't have needed to act it out. See, in that there way. you go. <laughs> and maybe that's, Jesus was the original analyst, okay? <laughs> like, he got it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh, that makes me kind of like him a little bit more. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That they're, because certainly, like, I, I mean, on a, in a really deep way, like he's talking about people can be largely unconscious, right? We can enact right. all kinds of things and have all kinds of thoughts and feelings that we haven't fully explored and we don't know what we're doing and they haven't examined their lives. Right. So if you're not leaving, living an examined life, you might end up really hurting people. Right. Versus like getting to know yourself and all of your parts, for better or worse, really mm. helps you. That's right. It really helps you. And, you know, I think that when we can do that, I do think that when we can do that, our capacity for love and forgiveness really increases. Yeah. Agreed. Because there will be nothing that you have that I don't know that I also have. Mm-hmm. Right? I can, you know, maybe you have way more of it or to a much larger degree. But there would be some piece that if I know myself really well, I'm like, I can relate to that. I've had that feeling. Not in that degree, not expressed that way, but I've had that feeling before. And so now it's not a you versus me thing. It's like we're both humans together here. Mm -hmm. Your expression's different from mine, but at least I can relate to that. I mean, mean, humans have the same stock emotions. We have the same, we have the same amount of emotions, but we just feel them different because different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. One of my um, supervisors used to talk about sort of like understanding, you know, different people who would come for help um, and the symptoms they had. She would look at their symptoms as what shape did their pain take, right? Someone got hurt in a particular way and they dealt with the hurt in a particular way. And that often becomes a symptom the way that they coped with pain and depending on the age and the circumstances and all kinds of things, that can be the way that you understand what's Mm -hmm. happening right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you can kind of go back and look at and then deal with what the pain was and sort of undo the symptom. 
What are some ways that you like would say pain takes the shape of? So it's not uncommon in people who have a type of obsessiveness or they might have a little OCD. Maybe they have a little, you know, it's a component of their personality to have had histories where they were in circumstances as a young child where they were not in control. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this isn't everybody. Mm -hmm. It's not true all the time, but this could be an example. So when you're, let's imagine you're a little kid and you hear your parents fighting downstairs in a way that's really, really scary and you're small and your life depends on them and their well-being and you love them and want them to be in harmony and this is maximally distressing to you and there is nothing you can do because you are small and powerless. So what you might do is you might take your your cars, your matchbook cars, and write them up in a really neat row. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might arrange your stuffed animals in a particular way. Like you, There might be a way that it's like, okay, I can't control all of that, but here is a thing I can do. Mm-hmm. right? And so And that kind of thing, it's sort of like then the pain of the moment gets imbued in the behavior, which Mm -hmm. can become symptomatic. So then you can end up with, you know, someone who might even have a magical legs. And let's say you got the cars lined up and then the fighting stopped. So you could end up, especially depending on the age, right? It really, this is like very age dependent, Mm -hmm. how the meaning a child would make of it. But depending on what age the kid was, that could kind of come into like create some type of a almost magical belief. You know, when you see people who like touch the doorknob three times before, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I've, you know, I've certainly seen all this manifest in all kinds of way. Like I can't leave the room until I tap the corner of the carpet. And mm-hmm. then if you go really back to when did that start and people do these things without their awareness, it often started in a moment of trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's sort of what I mean, mm-hmm. you know? And so, I mean, this is where we can, all of it, folks we can deal with it Mm -hmm. none of these things are so bad you know it's like you can deal with your pain you can handle it Mm -hmm. like just need someone to talk to right or like my friend Gretchen says you know if she will say that trauma oh my gosh trauma is healed in the context in which it happened so if you were traumatized one-on-one one-on-one therapy or one-on-one with a clergyman or one-on-one in some kind of a meaningful relationship will help you heal it if you were bullied and it happened in a group, then you might need a group to heal that trauma, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a societal trauma, then that's where the healing happens. Or like institutional. Institutional, yeah. exactly, mm-hmm. right? And I think that she makes a very good point. But we can do it. I mean, we're, look, we went from unconditional love all the way to... <laughs> yeah, but I, it actually made me just think of, think of, like when you said that, and even thinking about, like, let's say, like a little girl against an institution. Mm-hmm. Maybe like, what does that even look like? But it sure could start in a good place if that little girl's heart just wanted love. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, that kind of whips back to this idea of unconditional love. It's like, do you got it in a way where you feel like you can give it no matter what? Cause you're just a loving person. Right. Right. I mean, there is always the, it depends Mm-hmm. All, I mean, always, all of, you know, individuals, you know, I'm in a field that really looks at individual differences. So we, it all depends. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like there is a way that I think within a relationship, if you continuously undermine the relationship or undermine the other person that you are going to, you're going to damage the relationship, mm-hmm. which is where my version of, uncon- like, where I don't like this idea of unconditional love that you should, that I should be entitled to whatever 
I think I deserve no matter what just because I deserve it. That's, I don't agree with that. But there are certainly many other ways of looking at unconditional love, right? It's like someone is traumatized, like let's say within a community or something, then the community does need to find love of that person, right? And mm-hmm. that's going to be the thing that it will take yeah. to set it right, mm-hmm. right? Especially, you know, gosh... So many bad things happen to children. It really is. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like in my career, it's like I'm in a job where I see everything in hindsight. Mm-hmm. I see the end result. I see the symptoms that have been formed. Right? Which is why, you know, I wish there were more psychologists making policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we can tell you how to prevent all that. Yeah. We really can, yeah. Because we've seen the end, we've seen the end results, and we've heard the stories like a thousand million times. But I do think that in general, unconditional positive regard, assuming starting out with assuming the the best of someone, the in the innocent until proven guilty kind of model, and it it has there's a element of it that is selfless, the unconditional aspect of it. If it's like, it's not a deal, right? It's not like, I'll give you this and you give me that. It's not transactional. Yeah, it's not transactional. Right, right. I mean, that there would be basic human respect. Mm -hmm. Precisely. I mean, I think respect is maybe just the most important thing. Yeah. It would take a lot for me to stop respecting someone, like to respect the humanity in another person. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like unconditional respect is more Mm -hmm. maybe where I come from. Right. I will respect you as a person, but that doesn't mean that like I'm not going to disrespect you or call you names or diminish you or harm Mm -hmm. you in any way. But I may not open my door to you. Right. Right. And that got me the opening of the door. So, you know, that's that's like the ugh. that's the hard part for me because I feel like I'm a sucker. I can be a sucker <laughs> for somebody who is willing to say I messed up in the way where I would open my door. And I've said this analogy before, but the idea is like I set my table for the people in my circle. There's certain people in my life that, that there's there's no dish being set in preparation for them to come over. It's just not happening. They're not in my life. They're not there for a reason, and I'm not setting the table for them. But if they were to knock on my door and want to open a dialogue and have a conversation and to have a healing, like to to ha- let the healing happen, as long as I feel safe and the people around me feel safe, there's always enough food or love or forgiveness or whatever it is to go around, pull up a chair. But that doesn't mean that I'm creating my life waiting for that person to come and sit at the table that I set for them. Right, right, right. I mean, and and that's just, to me, it's like that's where it's at, that you would be willing to do that. Although there are cases, and there's a book that I'm trying to think of. I often forget the name of the author of this book, but um, he's a... I think a therapist who works in North Jersey who just self-published a couple of books around um, conflict and forgiveness that are so awesome because he really, he like writes a book for people who have been the perpetrator. Like if you have really harmed someone, 
how do you handle that? How do you learn to live with yourself? Mm. How do you try to make amends? How do you begin an apology? Right? How, what can the healing look like? And how do you live with it if the victim, the person you hurt, can't really give you the forgiveness? Mm. How do you get on with it anyway? And, maybe, and, and he sort of frames it as like sometimes the most loving act you can do to someone that you hurt and you don't want to keep hurting is to respect their boundary and know that staying away is an action, even if they're not willing to do the work. They're not, maybe they don't want to do what you're describing mm-hmm. of resolving it. Maybe the hurt was too profound or maybe they're not there yet. Right. And so I really, I really think it was like, I love that this guy wrote this book and I know I'm being super vague about it because I can't remember the author, but next time I mm-hmm. will tell you. Thanks for talking, Stephanie. Thank you, Lois. This was awesome, as always. Mm. I do feel sort of an unconditional version of love for you, just so you know. <laughs> right back at you. <laughs> well, everybody, thank you for listening. We're going to be signing off. If you want to listen to any of the past episodes that we have referenced, you can find links to all of them on our website, theeverydayfeminist.com. And we're also on pretty much every podcast platform, if you want to just Look for us. Feel free to play and share Mm -hmm. and reach out if you would like to. And we will uh, catch you next week. Bye. Bye.